right. Privilege for me to be here with you this morning and continue our series on the big questions. Um, as you can see, today we're talking about can we be good without God? So um, just singing about God's goodness is actually the sermon done pretty much. Um, and uh, it's just, I'm overwhelmed when, when we get to that. That's, but any breath in me, yeah. I will sing of the goodness of God. It is just, and that's what we're going to discover as well today as we contemplate uh, this question about can we be good without God. But just to put it in uh, context a bit about uh, where we are in the series, and, and also just to emphasize again, we're not just doing these talks to spend time on a Sunday morning. Um, as, as the leadership of the church, we really want to, to bring something to you that will equip you, that will help you to engage with conversation out there. So that's why we're looking at these. We're trying to, to give you something that when you enter in those conversations with people who don't believe, that you have something that you can, can go back to as well. So if I then just remind you of where we've got to in terms of the, the most recent ones, because it's very relevant for what we're looking at today. Um, so over the last two weeks, two weeks ago, Adam spoke about, is, is Jesus real? And as you will recall, he took us to evidence outside of the Bible, which was quite right to demonstrate to us that there is ample evidence and authentic evidence that um, what is recorded about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection is actually supported, even from sources outside the Bible. And then Reuben last week took us through, can we believe in the Bible? Is the Bible true? Um, and again, he very eloquently took us through evidence to especially show the authenticity of the Gospels. And um, I mean, we're not part of the EU now anymore because of Brexit, but Ruben introduced us to the EEU. <laughs> did you spot that? So what did he talk about? Bible was written early, so what we see there, it's early. There was eyewitnesses still alive at the time the story of the Gospels were documented. It's unchanged. Today we have access to historical documents that that we can compare to what is written down and what we see today. Um, so, so very strong evidence there again. And so then we come to that. And as those two are very important, as we start to consider today about can we be good about uh, can we be good without God? Uh, because the Bible is the truth that we refer to. Uh, but I'll get to that. I think something else that's quite relevant for me to reflect on. And sorry for the recap. But this year we, we kicked off with the origin series, you may recall. Um, and what did we do there? We went back to God's original design of creation. And that's very relevant for what we're going to look at uh, today. Because we saw that um, how God designed uh, all of creation originally. How he designed male and female, how he designed us, um, how he designed marriage, how he designed mankind to be in relationship with God. And then we jump to Revelation, where we looked forward to how God is restoring that original perfect design for where we're heading in terms of, of eternity. Um, we, we saw God's plan as to how he's getting rid of evil and of the lies of Satan that's trying to destroy that relationship that, that we have uh, with God. As a matter of fact, I mentioned this as a connect group the other day as well. I'm still in Revelation. I know we're well into the Big Question series, but there's so much there to, to dwell on. And um, 
in my continued reading of that and to remind you that in Revelations 1 verse 3, what's that verse that says, Blessed are those who read aloud this prophecy. And blessed are those that hear this and take this to heart. So I would encourage you to uh, not leave Revelation there. But in recent weeks, I've particularly been um, just reminded of how complete spiritual healing through the salvation of Jesus Christ. The brokenness, the hardship, the pain, the injustice, whatever form of inequality uh, or, or injustice that you can think of that exists today in the here and now is exactly that. It's in the here and now. What God has in store for us is a complete restoration that completely overshadows what, what we experience here. Um, complete restoration of body, mind, and soul. That is what eternity uh, is for us. So with that as context, all of the Bible we're looking at today, so I've been given a lot of time, so it's <laughs> you know. um, Let me dive into the question that, we, that we're addressing uh, today. So what I am going to do is I'm going to look at this, and we need to look at the, the, the dilemma the world finds itself in. What are they trying to solve? Because that's part of what we're doing through this uh, series, is to try to equip, equip you with that. We will then look at the fact that goodness exists because of God. That is the solution that we need to bring to the world. But then also for us, so what does that mean? What does it mean to live a meaningful Christian life in the context um, of, of this goodness? Um, why does it matter? I think it matters because what we've already spoken about, about where we're coming from in the, in the Christian series, but I also I want to anchor uh, most of the talk today in this first verse from James, James 2 verse 26, where he says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Okay, so let's just keep that in mind as we as we move through. I should have done this earlier, but I just want to check who, uh, how many philosophers do we have in the room today? Yeah. Anyone who studied philosophy at school or university? Not that many, so I'm maybe safe, actually. Uh, because last week, as you may recall, we discovered that we had a published author and a qualified historian that took us to the events of last week. I'm no philosopher. I'm just an accountant. Numbers and logic is what I need to make sense of the world around me. Sometimes I'm a bit of a creative accountant, so I can actually make 2 plus 2 be 5, but we can talk about that <laughs> on, on another day. But you can just Google a bit about this question, can we be good without God? And you will find numerous debates going on and philosophical reasonings put out there as the world is battling with this question and trying to find answers to that. And to be honest, some of those does my head in. I mean, I, I try, but I sometimes have to give up. Uh, probably because it's in very high English as well, which is not my forte. Um, but we need to venture there. So hopefully I can take you on some of that journey and encourage you to go and test it out in places where I've, I've read as well. So the point is the world is trying to understand morality, what's good and bad. Um, and they are trying, they're trying to figure out where it comes from. To a certain extent, they are trying to find evidence that it does not come from God. 
Otherwise, they will have to acknowledge the existence of God. And that will then raise a lot more questions that they would need to try and find answers to. So, um, I find it both fascinating and sometimes frustrating when I see uh, the intellectuals starting to grapple with the subject and trying to understand it and, and trying to put arguments out there to the world to explain where it comes from. Um, so there are a few that, I, that I'm going to just run through very, very briefly and I can't do it justice in terms of the subject matter, but let's just look at that. What are some of the things that the world is saying? Where does morality come from? So the first one is evolution. So it just happened by chance that we understand good and evil. Um, now if you think about it, that morality or doing good often means that you're putting someone else first. That you're putting yourself second. Which I, if I understand evolution, that's not quite how it works. It's about, broadly, the survival of the fittest. Okay. So just there, the argument already falls down. Uh, there was a, um, an author, Annie Dillard, she's an author and uh, philosopher in, in the US. She wrote a book, um, Pilgrim, um, Pilgrim at the Creek, Pilgrim at the something Greek. Um, and, and what she describes in, the, in that book that she writes is, is her journey on going and living next to a creek, uh, the desire to get closer to nature so that she can get closer to humanity. But then she observed the brutality of, of nature in a very little event that took place there that she actually describes in quite gory detail. But, but just to say what it was, it was this big water bug sucking dry a frog. And she looked at that and said, but there's no way um, nature can decide what's right and wrong. She writes, she says, I would never consider asking a vulture or a shark why. It is just how it is. Okay. So the argument about morality comes from evolution seems to, to be shaken. The next one is that it's relative. So it depends on circumstances. So relativism in its core suggests that there is no absolute truth. Truth is determined by or decided by the surrounding factors. When I read that, I was confronted with one specific question that I don't have the answer to. Because if someone is coming to me, trying to convince me that the ultimate truth is that truth is relative, shall I then believe them? Right, next one. Subjectivism. So Paul Peirce, the so-called father of secular humanism, said this. The moral principles that govern our behavior is rooted in habit and custom, feeling and fashion. So if morals are that subjective, then nobody can condemn what anybody else does. Because something that must can be perfectly morally fine for you could be completely morally wrong for someone else. Or the other way around. So the world is finding this. They're trying to find a base that is solid that you can reference to, to define good and bad. Fourth one, culturism. It's very close to the subjectivism part. Uh, so what is culture? The Oxford Dictionary defines it as the ideas, the customs, and social behavior of a particular people or society. 
So by implication, it is what the majority agrees is good. That is what the moral should be. Um, Tim Keller does a, does a, a whole series about questioning Christianity, and two of those episodes, the one is on morality and the other one is on justice, and there's, there's some really good um, examples there of where it compares to, to some teaching by other people, and he references one story about, uh, this is a, a cultural anthropologist, lady called Carolyn Lebon, who, um, who says that she is trained to go in, in, in into any culture with an, any preconceived ideas about what their values should be. And furthermore, as a secular person, she believes that a particular culture determines the moral relevant to that culture. So then she finds herself um, somewhere in Africa um, doing some anthropology study, studies there, and she is challenged by the way they treat the women in that society. And she starts to criticize them, that it's not morally right what they do. And then these people throw her philosophy and her arguments straight back to her, saying, well, I'm sorry, but don't you say that the culture decides morality? We are absolutely fine with the way we treat our women. And then she writes this, for a long time, I felt trapped between my anthropologist understanding of moral values and the claims of human rights. Finally, I came to realize there is a moral agenda larger than myself. There is a moral agenda larger than Western culture. And I decided to join many of my colleagues from different disciplines and began to work for women's rights in Africa. She continues to say, however, there is still a problem. What authority do Westerners have to impose our own concept of individual rights on the rest of humanity? But I decided that this cultural relativistic argument that I always used is now being used by oppressive governments to deflect international criticism to the abuse of their own citizens. And I'm not having that. Do you hear what happens here? She walks away from her philosophy, something that she stood by while it worked for her. At the moment she couldn't agree or didn't feel good about the morality that she said. She said, I'm not having any of that. So the whole base of what she based morality, she has just destroyed herself. Um, just in that. Okay. Um, so, ultimately, I guess, what we see is that the question is trying to define what good is, or what good looks like. Um, what is morality? And, and I'm not equipped to, and don't want to, uh, take you through one after the other philosophical argument uh, today to, to look at that. But what I can say to you, in all of the reading and the listening I've done in preparation for today's sermon, there was only one conclusion that I could come to. And that is morality needs a fixed external source. It cannot be explained by science or human meaning or human understanding. And actually, most scholars agree with that. Most of them find it very difficult to name the fixed external source as our God. Some do. But many 
are still referring to some transcendent influence outside of our capability of understanding. So it's interesting that many, many scholars that are trying to understand morality in the family find them in that place, that there's nothing on this earth that they can pin morality to, to, to make it constant, because that's what we would need. So, if someone would ask you the question, can an atheist do good? Can an atheist do good things? What are your answers? Yes. Of course they can. Of course they can do good things. It's almost like um, when they asked Mark Twain whether he believes in the infant baptism, and he then famously said, infant baptism? Do I believe in it? I actually saw it with my own eyes. <laughs> <laughs> So, we, we can all come up with lists of people, famous and infamous, people we know, people who are believers, people who are non-believers, um, or at least not publicly professing to that, that we know do amazing things. So now it becomes complicated. So is our question the right question? When I first looked at this question, and before I did any reading or research, my answer to this question, can we be good without God, was simply, but we're not without God. Whether you believe it or not, we are not without God. God created everything. Above all, He created us. Male and female, He created us. We read that in Genesis 1, verse 26, 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Saying that over and over again. Get it. I made you in my image. God is good and just. Therefore, being good is part of our original design. Whether you are a believer in God or not. But where do we go from here? Because Clearly, there are bad things happening around us. And if it was that simple, then why does the whole world not believe the fact that goodness comes from God? For me, it is rather simple. Um, but I have to acknowledge that my base is the Bible. My base is immovable belief in the God of the Bible. And linked to what Adam and Ruben took us through uh, the last, last two weeks, um, the ultimate truth for me is recorded in the Bible, and that is my framework. So therefore, it's not difficult for me. But that same Bible teaches me about choice, and it teaches me about the fallen angel Satan that seeks to destroy our relationship with, with God. I mean, Satan is defeated, and he knows that, but he doesn't want to go down on his own. He continues to this day. I mean, he started with that right at the start, to try to destroy the relationship between us and God. And he continues to do that. He's had many years of experience and practice in it. He uses clever people to build confusing arguments, to continually try to convince us that creation, as it's recorded in the Bible, is not how it happened. He's trying to disprove the existence of God, to disprove creation um, of the universe by transcendent power. The, he tries to disprove the reality of Jesus' ministry, which over the last two weeks we've been through, and we, we found the, the answers in that as well. And the list just goes on. 
Now, for me, the astonishing thing, as I was reading through many things, and perhaps it is not surprising, is that many, many scholars who set out to try to disprove Christianity actually comes to faith. And that is extremely encouraging. The list is very long of people that said they were atheists and, and turned uh, to believe. A couple of the most famous in our context will be people like C.S. Lewis or even Nicky Gumbel. Uh, that nowadays run the, the Alpha Course. They have a testimony of not believing, of saying I'm atheist, and then encountering Christianity and turning to Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust that I cannot believe in a God. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Another one, uh, another person that has become quite a renowned apologetic is a guy called Josh McDowell, and he has written many books on defending Christianity. A guy called Bill Wilson that worked with him did us all a favor, and he summarized lots of Josh's work in, in this book called um, Christianity Ready Defense. Now, next to my Bible and the photo album of our wedding, this is probably the most precious book on our shelf. I mean, it's got um, a lot of referencing in here, but if you, if you read through just chapter one of this book, you will, you will just see an amazing story about how an atheist being touched by Christianity as he's trying to disprove Christianity, uh, how his life has changed and completely transformed, <coughs> and then he spends his life with, uh, writing about a defense uh, for, for Christianity. Now the question then for me becomes, why are we concerned about doing good? And why does non-believers even think about it? And, and I guess if we were to ask them the question, they, they will say, well, it is just right. It feels good. Okay, and that then sounds to me like there's some form of an ingrained morality. Something that um, you can't explain it, it's just how it is. Uh, and that often, for people that want to try to figure things out, like an accountant like me, I would then encourage those people, if you encounter them, for them to study the Bible. To say, have you considered that what you feel about what's good or bad, perhaps it comes from this document that you haven't studied yet. Perhaps a good idea to go and search for it there. Because, as you can see, all kinds of other philosophers and scholars have tried to find it in other places, and they can't. But for those of us that understand that morality comes from God, why is this question relevant for us? Perhaps we are wondering whether we are good enough. If being a Christian means being good, what does good look like? And if I know what good look like, looks like, do I meet the standard? And if not, what will happen to me? Now, I've just said my framework is the Bible. So let's go there and see what does the Bible say about how can we achieve being good. There must be some guidelines for us in that. So let's kick off here. This is Paul writing in Romans, and he says in Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. 
Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Okay, that's not very helpful. So, I'm clearly not going to be good by following the law. Actually, the law is just going to tell me how bad I am. Okay? Tricky. Then Jesus himself, at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, um, in Matthew 5.48, he says, Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is just after he's gone through all of the law and explained to his listeners how to engage with the law and he concludes with, this is the standard. <coughs> Let's be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. It's getting more difficult. Paul continues in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now we're in trouble. And then in Romans 6, he continues, for the wages of sin is death. And then, as always with God, there's that amazing but that many of us believe. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. And he writes again about it in Ephesians 2, when, when Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So when I get there, you may say to me, oh great. So, if I'm being saved purely on my belief in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, and Paul says we shouldn't do good works to boast, perhaps I don't need to do good works. Um, but then you should continue reading, because in Ephesians 2 verse 10, we read, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And can you see, we're all the way back to Genesis 1 verse 26. We are God's handiwork. He created us for good works. He created us to model His character of love and goodness justice. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance uh, for us to do. Uh, I was listening, uh, as I said before, to Tim Keller, and he has a very practical way, which I found lovely to explain that concept. And he said, when he got married to his wife, he found himself starting to do things that makes his wife happy and gives her joy. She didn't actually write him down a list and rules and said, you better do this, otherwise I won't be happy. He just found himself doing those things because he loves them. I think that is also what it is for us in our relationship with God. So the question that is then, can we be good without God? And no, we can't. I think we've seen that. But it's not a problem. Whether you believe it or not, not a problem. God designed us in His image, so goodness already exists. And with any breath in my life, I will sing that forever. The goodness of God. When you believe that, it also equips you to have a place that you can go to that is solid and designed for eternity. If the world out there is challenging you about good and bad, our framework is the Bible. It's a place we go back to. It's God's design. That is what defines the rod of morality. That is what defines what is good 
and what's not good. That's not to say that we're all on a journey. That's not to say that people still get it wrong. There are uh, all kinds of conversations where people ask the question, so way back slavery was fine. I mean, even in time of the Bible, slavery was, was fine. So, and there were Christians that were engaged in that. So how come? And it's interesting that that is just the story of God in relationship with his people and on a journey with us all. It was as in sort of in the 4th, 5th century that some of the church fathers started to say, hmm, when I read about the character of God, there's something about slavery that doesn't make sense. Because if we were made in the image of God, there's obviously not a price you can put on that. So how can you buy someone? How can you have a price that you can put on a human being? created in the image of God. So, so over the centuries, that is what we as Christians have been grappling with, and that is our journey. We continuously check back to the framework that stands for eternity for us to figure out what is right and what's wrong. So when we do good, it's not to earn brownie points. It's not to confavor with God. It's not even to secure our salvation. We do good as a response of thankfulness for the immeasurable amount of love God has shown us. I actually want to, uh, got a bit of time, so let me just quickly read something from uh, this book from Josh McDowell. As I said in the first chapter, um, he describes how his life was changed and um, he describes how he was battling with meaning and life, as, as you would expect, and he's at, at university and he's quite a prominent leader and he does all kinds of things, but every night he goes to bed he still doesn't have meaning and, and that really gets to him. Then he spots these few people, I think he says eight, uh, people on campus that seems to be different and he starts to move a bit closer to them and, and one of his encounters with them, he asks one of the, the ladies there, he says, Tell me what changed your lives. Why are your lives so different from the other students, the leaders on campus, the professors? Why? Then he writes, that young woman must have had a lot of conviction. She looked me straight in the eye, no smile, and said two words I never thought I'd hear as part of a solution in a university. She said, Jesus Christ. I said, oh for goodness sake, don't give me that garbage. I'm fed up with religion. I'm fed up with the church. I'm fed up with the Bible. Don't give me that garbage about religion. And she shot back and said, listen, I didn't say religion. I said, Jesus Christ. And that touched him and he started, but he was angry actually. And he thought, I'll prove you wrong. So he continued to journey with them and really challenged them on everything they did. Um, and at one point they put it back to him and said, okay, you go there. Prove us wrong clever comment. So he had to study the Bible and increasingly he found it uncomfortable to challenge them because the Holy Spirit was working in his heart and then, and this was fascinating for me, so then he writes, but since I was open-minded, on December 19th, 1959, at 8.30pm, during my second year at university, I became a Christian. It's quite specific, isn't it? <laughs> I like that. Somebody asked me, how do you know? I said, look, I was there. It changed my life. 
So here's a man that, um, one of many examples, that set out this proof of Christianity and the Lord changed his life. And I want to also help you, I mean, we do it often here, and I mean, there may be someone here today that is saying, well, perhaps I should do that as well. And for some of us, we may say, well, I've had that conversation with someone, how do I guide someone through that prayer? So I'm going to ask that we just close our eyes, and I'm going to read the prayer that he prayed for us to, to think about it, to think about our own journey, and for some of you or <coughs> someone here that may think, I am ready to make that call in my life. You can pray this prayer with Josh McDowell. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. <coughs> Secondly, Lord, I confess those things in my life that aren't pleasing to you and ask you to forgive me and cleanse me. Thirdly, Lord, right now, in the best way I know, I open the door of my heart and life and trust you as my Savior and Lord. Take over the control of my life. Change me from the inside out. Make me the type of person who created me to be. And lastly, Lord, thank you for coming into my life by faith. Amen. So he, um, he then continues to describe the journey after that because he wasn't miraculously a perfect person after that. So he then talks about how God dealt with his restlessness, his pride, um, his um, stubbornness, his, his anger, his hatred. He actually tells a lovely part of where his hatred towards his dad completely turns over as God fills his heart with love and he's able to reconcile with his dad and actually lead his dad to Christ uh, as well. So, what is our conclusion then? God exists, good exists because God exists. Good is defined by God. We are created in God's image and when we realize that, we are compelled by our love for our Heavenly Father to do what is good, just, loving, in line with the character of God. May you be blessed. Thank you very much.